And then all God's people said, Amen. You know, God is working and has been working for many, many years, breakthrough in many, many lives, and we're so very grateful for that. And that really is what breakthrough is about, the working of God across this church family, out into our community, changing lives, making a difference. God is doing breakthrough, and we're so very grateful for that. Well, Ronald Wayne missed out on the opportunity of a lifetime. Unless you're a tech history junkie, you probably have never heard of him. But along with two men who you have heard of, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, Ronald Wayne founded Apple. In 1976, they were all working in a garage in Los Altos, and Ronald Wayne actually was the one who drew up the first partnership agreement. He was the one who wrote the first manual for the Apple One, and he even drew the first Apple logo. But Ronald Wayne was a 40-something businessman with a family, with kids, a house, and when the 20-something Steves started taking out loans, he knew that if the fledgling company failed, then he was the one, the only one who had assets, and the creditors are going to come after him. So less than two weeks after Apple was founded, Ronald Wayne bailed and he sold his 10% stake in Apple for $800. (laughs) If he hadn't bailed, if he had stayed uh, along the way, all the way to today, Ronald Wayne would be worth about $100 billion. He'd be one of the richest men in the world. Now, I'm sure some of you have a story Um, A lot of people have stories of financial regret, especially in the Bay Area, those what-could-have-been, those if-only stories. So I want to start today with just a real quick question that you can just think about in your mind. What is your biggest financial regret? I'm sure we all have them, but that made me think of another thought, kind of a strange thought, and it was this. What if you could ask dead people their biggest financial regret. You know, the financial services industry, which is valued at around $27 trillion now, provides all kinds of calculators to help us figure out, you know, how much money we need when we retire. You've probably used at least one of them. And the biggest fear that many of us have is that when we retire, we're going to end up outliving our retirement. And everybody wants to know, what number do I have to hit? Because nobody wants to run out of money before they die. See, we all get this. Conventional wisdom tells us, make sure you have a financial plan that lasts until the day that you die. But kingdom wisdom, the wisdom of Jesus says, make sure you plan for the day after the day you die. In other words, when my earthly life is over, when I enter into eternity, how will I and Far more importantly, how will God evaluate my financial life then? See, when people stand before God, no one ever says, I wish I'd piled up more stuff. I think most people on the other side of death will say, I wish I'd had less financial anxiety. I wish I had trusted God more. I wish I had been more generous with what God gave me the way that he has been generous with me. In other words, I think that they would say, I wish I had experienced a generosity breakthrough. 
And that's what we're talking about today. We're in week three of our breakthrough series, and, and today is the generosity message. I know it's the message you've all been waiting for. You've been asking me, when is it coming? And I haven't told some of you because I knew you wouldn't show up if I told you when, but it's today, and you're here, and if you didn't want to be here, too bad. <laughs> but I want to show you today um, how you can have a generosity breakthrough. And, and I say this knowing, honestly, some of you don't want to have one. Some of you really aren't interested in having a generosity breakthrough. In fact, you're maybe a little annoyed that you didn't know ahead of time this was the week I was going to be talking about money. And you know, you're power to the Southwinds family, but you do your best to avoid these kind of messages when you can. Now, I'll tell you, I'm not really worried about you, if that's you, but I am kind of concerned about our guests because the reality is every Sunday there are people who are new here, maybe for the very first time, and I'm a little concerned today that when I talk about generosity, guests may be here like you, maybe for that first time, and you don't know that we really don't talk about this subject all that often. And so I just want to say, if you're a guest today, please relax, because we never ask our guests to give. I want to be really clear that we are not trying to get your money. Today, I'm really just talking primarily to family. And see, at Southwinds, we, we believe at the bottom of our hearts that God has called us as a church to reach Tracy and Mountain House and Lathrop with the gospel. Amen? And part of what that requires, just part, is generous and sacrificial giving from everyone who is part of our church family. And the truth is, for us to fulfill what God has called us to do, we need to be a generous church family. And for us to be a generous church family, that means we need people, individuals like you, to also be generous, to grow in generosity. And so we need a generosity breakthrough. And the question is, how's that going to happen? I just want to give you a statement that I want to lay out there. I would encourage you to write it down in your message notes and think about it. But it's simply this. I will experience breakthrough in my generosity when I trust in and act on God's principles for generosity. God teaches us many things across the Bible in many different places about generosity. And I want to show you some of those things this morning. I actually want to show you what I'm going to call five generosity realities. And these are realities that we need to understand and work out in our lives. And the first two are kind of overarching, general, foundational realities. And then the next three are going to come from a specific, important passage in the book of 2 Corinthians. And so with that, let's dive in. Here's the first generosity reality. It's real simple. God owns everything. Okay? Are we clear on this? God owns everything. The Bible is so clear that all the stuff around you, all the stuff you buy, all the stuff you fill your house and your garage with, God says, it's mine. God owns everything. 1 Chronicles 29, 11, and 12 is just one example. David prays and says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything. Say everything. Everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Oh, isn't it true? We think it's our stuff. But God says, it's my stuff. I created the universe. 
I created you. It's all mine. It's kind of like your kids when you're at home and they play with the stuff you have at your house. It's really your stuff, right? You bought all of it for them, but you let them play with it. You, 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 let, them, you let them do some things with it. And God says, I'm the father and it all belongs to me. It all belongs to me. And we struggle with that. There's an old 80s song that Donna Summer sang. Some of you will remember it. She works hard. Now I just know how old all you people are to laugh, huh? (laughs) She works hard for the money and you better treat her right. Remember that song? And don't we think, aren't some of us thinking right now, well, I work hard for the money and you better treat me right. And some of us don't really like this idea of God owning everything. We work for it, but God says no matter how hard you worked, and God acknowledges that hard work, it, it still all belongs to me. In fact, God knows how we think, and so he tells us this in Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 17 and 18. Look at this on the screen. You may say to yourself, some of you are saying to yourself right now, <laughs> my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. Anybody just say that right now? Anybody think this right now? But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. See, God says, you work hard, But how hard could you work if you didn't get the strength that I gave you? Your strength comes from me. You say, well, I'm pretty smart. I'm clever. I'm intelligent. Where did you get your intelligence? And how about this one? Where did you get your health? How much do you think you would be able to make if suddenly your health was taken away from you? See, everything we have comes from God. And the truth of the matter is, when you die one day, your knee will bow, your tongue will confess that God owns everything. And so here's my question today. Why not align your life with this reality now? Why not now say, everything I have is a gift from the true owner, God? And here's the thing. If you're a Christ follower, this is actually very, very personal If you say, I have a relationship with Jesus, God's son, he died on the cross for my sins, then God says, not only do I own your stuff, I own you. Do you know this passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 and 20? Paul says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. God says everything includes your body. Your body belongs to me. I paid the price for you. You were sold as a a slave to sin. I bought you back. I own you. I want you to write down a couple of questions that will help you move toward a generosity breakthrough. And in your life group, maybe this this is going to be some of what you talk about, but it certainly can help you personally. First question is, does my generosity reflect God's ownership of everything? Just ask yourself that question. Are are you willing to ask yourself that question? Second, does my generosity reflect the price God, Christ paid at the cross? Two very important questions. And you will never experience a generosity breakthrough until you begin living out of this reality that God owns everything. Now, since God owns everything, it leads to a second 
generosity reality, and it's this. I'm just a manager of everything God gives me. This is the reality. This is the truth, whether you accept it or believe it or not. The Bible's word for manager is steward. We don't use that word as much anymore these days, but it means essentially the same thing. You are never going to experience a generosity breakthrough until you understand the difference between ownership and stewardship. And once you understand and recognize that God owns everything, and once you begin to align your life with that truth, you will realize, I'm a steward, I'm a manager, and that means I'm responsible for how I handle God's stuff. How should I do this? Well, here's an important verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. Moreover, Paul writes, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So, so to be a good manager of God's stuff, I need to be faithful. What does faithful mean? Earlier this year, uh, Dana and I wanted to take a fresh look at our retirement plans. Now that I'm into my late 40s, I decided it would be a good idea to, <laughs> to do that. Um, so we, we, we called a uh, financial advisor, retained this person, and he began to engage us in a conversation. And some of you know this. And not only did he ask for some facts, he needed to know the realities of our financial situation, he took a lot of time to ask us a lot of pretty personal questions, all having to do with what our financial goals were, what we wanted to do, where we wanted to be when we eventually got to retirement age. And he didn't tell us anything about how we should invest because it's not his money. If he spends the money that we've entrusted to him, by the way, he goes to a place we call prison, <laughs> right? His job is just to give us wise counsel, to give us prudent direction so that we can decide how best to spend the money that we would say is ours, which I've just been telling you is actually God's ultimately. The point is his job is to be faithful, and that really is our job, to be faithful with God's stuff. The truth of the matter is, because everybody's thinking that we're talking about money, and some of you have kind of slid that wallet down into a more secure place, a little more protected than normal. Everybody thinks we're talking about money, but God requires faithfulness with everything he gives us, not just with what we give. What we do with the money that we have in every area of our life, you know, when we buy a house, when we buy the things that we put in the house, when we buy cars, when we go on vacations, when we eat out, I mean, everything, God requires faithfulness because it's all God's. Do you live out of this reality? See, when it comes to generosity, one of the big problems that many of us face is we haven't been faithful with God's stuff. We've already bought the stuff we wanted without ever asking God. We've many times violated some of God's principles for finance by taking on debt foolishly, most often, let's be honest, to gratify our desires now rather than waiting until later. And so a lot of times we look at the resources that we have now and it seems like we don't have anything really left to be generous with. And what happens, the reality is we end up telling the owner whose name is God that we've already spent his stuff to get us stuff. And so we really don't have margin to invest in his kingdom. And one of the things that I hope you will understand if you don't already is that this impacts our spiritual lives. See, when we talk about money 
And if you read the Bible closely, you'll see this. Money is intensely spiritual. It really, really is. And if we are not managing what God has given us faithfully, it impacts our spiritual lives. I know, you know, for some of you right here today, I'm not, I'm not thinking about anybody in particular. You just let this lay as it, as it lands. God seems sort of unreal to you. He seems kind of disconnected from your everyday life. And maybe this is part of the reason why. Maybe you should consider, have I been faithful in managing God's stuff? You say, well, do you have a verse for that? Oh, yeah, I got two. And I could give you more if we have more time. But Luke 16, 10 and 11 says, Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And true riches in this context are spiritual riches, spiritual insight, spiritual power for living. And this tells us that how we handle our earthly resources impacts our spiritual lives and i just have to ask are you spiritually stuck and could it be that the problem is right here you know i think for some of us see our our generosity breakthrough needs to begin with honest confession we just need to repent where you have not been a faithful manager and you need to receive god's forgiveness and god's grace and isn't it good to know that god is so full of mercy that whenever we come to him and confess our sins he forgives and he cleanses us and we can start again see this next question may also help you move toward a generosity breakthrough you can ask it of yourself it's a good diagnostic does my generosity demonstrate faithfulness to god now these are the two kind of foundational generosity realities and i want you to see as we move to second corinthians the next three that realities that help us experience generosity breakthrough we're going to be in second corinthians 8 and 9 looking at some verses there and as you turn there the context is paul is writing to a church that he planted in this major city of corinth and you know corinth was one of the major commercial uh, cultural centers of the roman empire i think you could make a real case that analogously it's a lot like the bay area is a place of influence that spread out across the world And so you have this church that's been planted in this city, and it's not a church of people who grew up in church. And there's a lot of interesting things going on, some good, some not so good. They did some things well, but they also struggled in many ways. And in 2 Corinthians, Paul is writing to them to remind them of some commitments they had made. And one of the commitments they had made was to be a generous church. Now, you can go check this out later, but in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about an offering that they had started. You might even call it a giving campaign, and it was designed to support Christians in Jerusalem. You can study the history of this time. There was this great famine, probably some persecution going on in Jerusalem and in the areas around, and and so Christians in other part of the empire kind of were rising up to help those Christians in Jerusalem. And so Paul is writing on behalf of the Jerusalem church to raise funds, to raise support for them. And we see this as a big deal. We see it in 1 Corinthians. We see it here in 2 Corinthians. We see it in Galatians and in Romans. We see it in the book of Acts. It's a very big thing across the New Testament. And so that's the context of what we're going to see. Paul is calling this church in Corinth to uphold their commitments. 
And this is where I get what I would call the third generosity reality. You can write this down. Very important. Generosity does not depend on my resources. And this truth is so important because many of us think that the reason we're unable to grow in generosity is because we just don't have enough. We can barely make ends meet. But that is precisely what we do not see in the Bible. Look at verses 1 and 2, 2 Corinthians 8. Paul says, and now, brothers, he's addressing the Corinthians, we want you to know about the grace, mark that word, that God has given the Macedonian churches. Out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Now, Paul is beginning his appeal to the Corinthians by telling them about some other churches, these these churches in Macedonia. This is the region where um, the church in Philippi was. And he says to the Corinthians, the Macedonians have been inspired by your start of the offering to go to Jerusalem, and now they're living generously. But I want you to notice what Paul says about their generosity. He kind of gives us a generosity formula, if you will, and you're going to be surprised by it. Here's the formula. He says their overflowing joy plus extreme poverty equals rich generosity. Who says right now that makes no sense? That's what he says. Joy plus poverty equals generosity. In other words, generosity doesn't depend on my resources. But we, we, we hear this and we think, well, how can that be? I mean, how can... When you're poor, how can you be generous? And when, when you don't have anything, how, how can generosity flow? And I, I want to show you how we really, we really think it works, okay? We're, we're leaving the Macedonians aside for a moment. We're going we're to do how we think it works. And I'm going to ask you a question. You don't have to answer this question to me, but I want you to answer with the first thing you think. And then I want you to not tell me, but tell the person next to you what your answer is. And don't overthink it and don't spiritualize it. Here's the question. If you won the lottery tomorrow, what would be the first thing that you would buy? Go. Tell somebody. Real quick. You guys don't want to admit it, huh? First thing comes to your mind. See, this is really great. You can keep talking, because I, but I know what's happening now because we're in church, and here's what's happening. You guys are coming up with all these incredibly noble spiritual things that you would do. You know, well, I'd tithe, of course. I mean, that's what I would do if I got all the lottery. I'd give that back to the Lord, the first 10%. Anybody say anything like that? Don't raise your hand. And some of you say, well, I buy a house for my parents, and that's actually a beautiful thing. I mean, mean, you should do that if you win the lottery. But I just want you to think what your honest response is. You know, some time ago, there was this $1.5 billion lottery, and somebody won it, this payout, and, and they said that whoever won it, after you took the taxes out, the lump sum, they got $491 million. That seems like a ripoff, right? <laughs> I'm really mad for that person who only got $491 million. But I was looking at that, I did some research, and do you know that two of three people who win $50,000 or more in the lottery are bankrupt? within five to seven years. And many of those people win multiple, multiple millions of dollars. They've got websites out there. You can read them if you want to be depressed. <laughs> um, but like the worst lottery stories, how they turn out. And 
a lot of them end up in suicide. This one guy who won, are you ready, $381 million. Before he committed suicide, he said, I wish I had never bought that ticket. It's crazy. And here's why all of that happens. The lottery doesn't change you. See, this is my point in asking the question. Some of us think if I had a lot, I would be different. The lottery doesn't change you. The lottery amplifies you. You see, what we do now with whatever we have is likely pretty much what we would do no matter our financial situation. And some of us need to quit kidding ourselves. See, maybe you need to stop and reconsider your practice of generosity because if you are waiting until you're in a stronger position financially to be generous, then you don't understand generosity. Generosity is never about what you can afford. Generosity is always about joy. Somebody needs to write that down and think about it. And some of us are missing out on so much joy. Look what Paul says as he continues, verse 3. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. Paul says they gave beyond their ability. In other words, they didn't depend on their resources to be generous. They looked to God and they trusted God to provide. I want to highlight two very strange words here, okay? The first is the word pleaded. Paul says the Macedonians urgently pleaded with him to participate in this offering. And I have to just tell you, I've been a pastor for 34 years. I don't really know what he's talking about here (laughs) because I've never experienced that. Urgently pleading, you know, please, Pastor Mike, can we take another offering? Please, Pastor Mike, can we do another three-year spiritual initiative? I I just don't know what that is about. I mean, and uh, you're not laughing. (laughs) (laughs) But again, Paul didn't plead with them They pleaded with him. Isn't that odd? And I have to ask, what would breakthrough be like for you if that was your approach? What if every one of us said, you know, God wants to do some incredible things here in Tracy, and we want to continue telling the next generation about the wonders of God. We want to be able to really impact so many lost lives that they're out there to touch, so many broken lives that they're there to heal. And God has given us this beautiful resource of this expanded campus. You see all the great things getting ready to happen in just a few hours. Harvest Party. There's going to be thousands of people coming here, and a lot of them need to know Jesus. And part of why we can do this is what has happened. So are we going to say, let's leverage what God has given us for his glory, for our good in Tracy and Mountain House and Lathrop? It's a privilege to be part of God's work. In fact, privilege is the second strange word here because these Macedonians saw giving as a privilege, not a duty. They realized that God had given them so very much. And this is, of course, spiritually, not materially, that they wanted to give to others. These are people that realize that we're never more like God than when we're generous. And so they saw generosity as a privilege. So I want you to see that generosity that doesn't depend on my resources depends on something else. And I think the something else is what we see in verse 5. It says, And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. 
See, generosity is ultimately a matter of lordship. Who is Lord of my life? And we never experience generosity breakthrough until we give ourselves fully to the Lord. And so that means the question is never, what do I have? The question is, who is Lord? And what does he want me to do? And you see, once we get that, generosity becomes this amazing adventure. It's, a, it's an adventure filled with more joy than we can imagine. It's an adventure of spiritual breakthrough. It's an adventure of lives that are changed for eternity. And I just want to be real clear because the Macedonians' experience makes it real clear. It's not about the amount. See, if we were probably to know how much those Macedonians gave, in their context, we would probably be unimpressed because they didn't have much. But they gave generously out of what they have. And that's all that God asks anyone to do. It's not about the amount. It's about the generosity out of what God has given us. And here's another question I'd like you to ask yourself. Am I waiting for my circumstances to change before I grow in generosity? That leads me to the fourth generosity reality, and it's this. Generosity is my response to God's grace. See, I told you generosity was spiritual. It truly is. So if the Macedonian's generosity was not rooted in their financial status, then where did it come from? And the answer is it came from their joy in the Lord. It came from their desire to be obedient to God's will for them. And all of that was rooted in God's grace. See, Paul, in this flow of this letter, has given the Corinthians an illustration of this church. And what he's really saying now is, what about you, Corinth? You're a church in a city. It's one of the major commercial and cultural hubs of the Roman Empire. You have resources. In verse 6, he says, So we urged Titus, since he had earlier made a beginning, to bring also, also to completion this act of grace on your part. And you might want to underline that phrase, act of grace. Notice how he's talking about generosity here. Paul says, remember that offering we started, that commitment we made to be a generous church? I'm going to send Titus to you. He's a man that you know and you trust. And he says, let's finish this thing. Let's complete this act of grace. And I want you to notice, Paul doesn't say, let's complete this offering. Paul doesn't say, let's finish this obligation. Paul doesn't say, let's pass the offering bags a second time. He says, let's complete this act of grace. And that word grace is very intentional. If you sit down and read this whole passage, you'll see this word grace showing up again and again and again. It it, it appears almost more than any other word. And most of us know that that by definition, grace means a free gift. It's defined as the unmerited favor of God. And Paul is saying in the same way that God gives us grace, he calls us to give grace. We have received grace. May we become grace givers. Paul knows that these Corinthians need to grow in generosity. And and I think the reality he would say to them when you look at this whole uh, context is that as they have been blessed in material ways, they have started to forget all the ways that God has blessed them spiritually. This happens all the time. It's kind of an interesting thing. There was a study published in The Atlantic in 2011. It found that Americans with earnings in the top 20% and 
By the way, if you look that up, you'll probably be surprised that a very large number of us, regular middle-class people in Tracy, fall into that category. But those Americans gave, on average, 1.3% of their gross income to charity. By contrast, this study showed that the bottom 20%, so the poorest fifth in our culture, are you ready for this? They gave over 3.2% of their income to charity. If you look at the middle class, you see much of the same thing. In fact, if you run the, the, the brackets, it pretty much drops. The more money that people earn, the lower the percentage of their giving becomes. This is a little bit different study that I came across. It's kind of counting in a different way, as you'll notice. But it found that people making fifty to 75000 a year gave on average 7.6% of their discretionary income. Okay, that's not gross, just their discretionary income. And those who made 100000 or more, they gave... 4.2% of their discretionary income. Now, why would that be? Is it possible that it's because we tend to forget grace? That, that's why Paul is challenging the Corinthians like he does. Look at verses 7 and 8. He says, But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Is that a spiritual goal for you? To excel in the grace of giving, Paul commands that. He doesn't command them to give in a particular way, as he says here. He says, I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. So what he does is he appeals to where they've excelled. He says, listen, Corinthians, in your joy in Christ, in your wealth, in you're really faithful, and you talk great, and you have knowledge and you show love to other people. But he says, also excel in this grace of giving. He doesn't tell them what to give, though he could have. He's an apostle, but he doesn't. He appeals. But he appeals not to a command, but to grace. And again, grace is one of the most repeated words in these chapters. And again, the, I think we would say the predominant idea in 2 Corinthians 8 is not generosity, but it's grace. That word grace, a free gift, not an obligation, unmerited favor. In fact, if you stop to think about it, isn't grace itself generosity? I want you to notice next how Paul defines grace. In verse 9, he personifies it. Why don't you read these words with me? He says... For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. And I think this is the central teaching we need to hear. This is like the why behind the what. And if you forget everything else that you hear today, please do not forget this. The motivation behind Paul's call to generosity is God's grace in Jesus. See, Paul, interestingly, in this section, uses financial language to describe grace. He talks about rich, poor, poverty. And he's trying to get us to think about what has happened in Jesus. Jesus, before he came to earth, was rich. Would we all agree with that? He's in heaven. He rules the universe. He has everything. Every resource imaginable. Money, power, creativity, joy, relationship, time. I mean, he was rich, and yet, Paul says, 
For your sake, he became poor. And I think sometimes we think of that figuratively. But don't over-spiritualize this. Jesus literally became poor. What, is the gospel, what do the Gospels tell us? He was born in a feeding trough. He grew up a peasant among the lowest of the low economically. At one point in the Gospels, you remember Jesus says, the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. He was essentially homeless. In Jesus' last days, he rides into Jerusalem on a borrowed donkey. He eats dinner in a borrowed house. And when he dies, he gets buried in a borrowed tomb. I mean, he literally has nothing. Jesus was poor. And even on the cross, you remember the guards cast lots for his only possession, a robe. And in that moment as he dies, they strip him of every single thing that he owns. Jesus became poor. And he became poor so that by his poverty, Paul says, we might inherit riches, eternal riches. Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died. He was our substitute so that we could inherit. Again, notice the financial language, life with the Father eternally. See, I just want you to see, Paul doesn't wield a command here. He appeals to grace. Jesus becomes poor. And he does it, Hebrews 12, 12 says, out of joy and generosity towards you. Do you remember that verse? For the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross, that writer says. In his poverty, he went to the cross. He died on the cross for you and for me. The cross is the ultimate example of generosity. And that example should motivate us to be generous. So the question here is, how does grace influence my generosity? How does grace influence my generosity? Let me take us to the, to the final generosity reality, and I want to kind of tie this back to what we started with. Great, generosity is the best long-term investment strategy. For those of you who are into finance, maybe you'll be connecting with this see the truth is the bible says whatever we do with our resources in this life if we spend those resources on temporary things we will only have temporary payoffs temporary rewards the bible is so clear that it is only as we invest in god's kingdom and in people that we will receive an eternal return on our investment and i want to take us to second corinthians 9 a few verses there to show you what I'm talking about. Because in 2 Corinthians 9, 6, Paul reminds the Corinthians of a universal principle of life. You probably know this verse. You've heard it many times. Paul says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. And we get that when it comes to farming, right? I mean, we don't know how farming works, but we get that. The more seed you plant, the greater the harvest that you will receive. But Paul is saying the same principle holds true in generosity. Whoever sows sparingly is going to reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously is going to reap generously. It is a law of the universe. It is the way God created the universe to work. And I have to raise the question because I think some of us need to grapple with this. Some of us are even now reaping a stunted, sparse spiritual harvest because we've only sown sparingly. 
In other words, we've cheated ourselves out of spiritual growth. We don't know God like we could. We're missing out on the joy and the freedom that comes from giving generously. Now, here's the thing. I know, I know that some of you think this is just what pastors say to get money for the church. But I just have to tell you, if that's what you think, it's not me you're disbelieving, it's God, because this is God's word, and God says, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. I didn't say that. That's God's word. And so the question becomes for us, who who do I believe? I want to help you with this concept by, by sharing a principle as we wrap this up. I want you to write this down. It won't be on the screen but I want you to think about it, and this will help some of you. Most real generosity comes from small but consistent steps. For many of us, we're going to get on the road to generosity when we get this principle. Because far more of us are capable of giving generously than we think. And so if you want to experience a generosity breakthrough... I want to ask you, will you pray about taking some next steps in your generosity journey? Just start wherever you are. And and for some of you, you may be totally new to generosity. Maybe you've never done this before. Maybe you've never heard about this before. Maybe this season will be the first time that you trust God to work in this area of your life. And so I want to challenge you. Will you believe that God's word is true? And and, and will you sow generously? Whatever that means in your life, God will tell you. Now, some of you, you're a person who gives, but if you got honest with yourself, you would know that you're not stretching, you're not sacrificing in any meaningful sense. Maybe breakthrough this time in the life of our church will be for you a season of taking a step forward and beginning to tithe, beginning to do something that for you is sacrificial. Some of you, you are faithful. You give a tithe, and maybe you give beyond. You've been sacrificial. You know the joy of generosity. You've seen God prove himself faithful to you again and again and again. Well, maybe during this season, God is calling you to step beyond. And if he does that, I can assure you, he's doing that for your good. He's doing that so you can experience joy. He's doing that so you can become more like him. You may have noticed as you received the the program on the way in today, it's also going to be in the generosity guides uh, that you'll receive on the way out. There are three questions that we're asking everyone to pray over in their family before we get to Commitment Sunday in a couple weeks on November the 3rd. And I just want to say, almost all of us will ask question number one, but our, our understanding of grace and generosity is going to be revealed in whether or not we will ask questions two and three. And our trust in God will be revealed in how we answer those questions. Question one is just the place we all would start. What can I reasonably give? And this is where most of us begin. We, we just look at our resources. Often we do this very quickly, casually. We say, well, I could afford to do this. But that probably won't require for us much faith. Question two is what can I reprioritize and then be able to give? In other words, what might I sacrifice in my life? And in your commitment or your generosity guide, you're going to see we give lists of some different things people can do in their life, just adjustments we all can make, right? Let me just ask a real quick question here. How many of you spend some money? It's probably a little bit, okay? Just a little bit. That's all I'm going to ask you to admit to. 
You spend some money pretty much every week that you don't have to spend. A little bit, right? Somebody just said that's everybody, and I agree. It is everybody, right? This is what we're talking about here. There's discretionary stuff in our lives, things we don't have to do. And the second question is, it's like, how can I reprioritize and how can I channel some of that towards something that's going to last longer than what I'm spending it for? This is what this question is about. And then third, what can I rely on God for in an exercise of faith? Now, see, this is the real bold step. God may be calling you to do something you don't think you can do. But if you hear his voice speaking, will you trust him? Will you step out in faith? Will you do whatever he tells you to do? You'll notice also in that commitment guide, the, the program that you received on the way in, there's a lot of different ideas of creative things that will apply to some of us. You may want to check those out. Maybe those things will help you as you get to this place of experiencing breakthrough here. Back in 2 Corinthians 9, Paul says, Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And we're not trying to twist anybody's arm. We're not going to harangue anybody. We, we want everyone to decide, as Paul said, in their own heart by listening to the Spirit. And again, you may be thinking, I don't have much. My gift won't matter. Everyone has something to contribute. Do not minimize what God has given you. I was reminded this week of the reality that God is not in need of our money. He just wants our hearts. And I was reminded by that real famous story in the Gospels, how when Jesus wanted to feed 5,000 men and then women and children, maybe it's 20,000 people. Do you remember what he used? He used a little boy's lunch. Five loaves and two fish. God can do great things with very, very little. Somebody wrote me this email. Pastor Mike, you often hear you can't outgive God. And when I reflect what God has sacrificed for me, it is embarrassing to think that giving back what is already his is, quote, sacrificial. When I look into the face of my new grandchild and when I think of all the new babes in Christ that will come to know him through our expansion, what sacrifice is worthy of the sharing of the gospel to the new and next generation? 2 Corinthians 9, 8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. I just want to leave you with a couple of passages of Scripture to ponder. This is from Proverbs 3. You probably know these verses. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. And then verses 9 and 10, honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. God owns everything. Everything I have comes from him, and I'm responsible to manage faithfully whatever it is that he has given me. Let me just remind you before we pray that as we come to the end of our lives, and it's going to happen one day, for all of us. We will stand before God. We will give an account of our lives. We will give an account of how we lived in response to the grace that God showed us in Jesus. And I, I cannot tell you what that means for you. That, that's God's job. But I can encourage you 
to listen to God's voice, to take his words about generosity seriously. And I can pray that you will respond in such a way that when that day comes, that day after you die, you will not look back on your practice of generosity with regret. This is the word of the Lord. Would you bow your heads as we pray?